Let me ask you to reach for a Bible and to turn to page 61. Page 61, you should find Exodus chapter 20 there. If you're in your own Bible, it's for the last time we turn to these Ten Commandments. Let me lead us in prayer. We've just sung of your greatness, almighty God, and reminded ourselves that we are small and that we should bow humbly and fall before you. Um, we know that the one that you esteem is the one who is humble and contrite in heart and trembles before your word. And so we pray that you would give us that holy reverence of you now, that you might teach us and instruct us. You might help us to reflect on our lives, on our love for one another, our love for you, so that we might be built up and strengthened in our walk with you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And as so often in the series, I'm just going to read one verse. You'll remember God had saved his people. He brought them to Mount Sinai, and then he told them how to live in relationship with him. These 10 words of life we've been looking at. And Exodus 20, verse 17 is the last of them. God said, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. I thought I'd start by asking if you can name one thing that you think you might need more of in your life if you were going to be truly, truly happy. I'm on it for a second before you reply. The, the answer we give will say a lot about what we value most in life. What do you need more of to be truly happy? Have you ever found yourself visiting friends and thinking, I wish we got to live in a house like theirs. Ours is just so small in comparison. It's so dated. How come they get to live in a nice house and have all of this nice stuff and we don't or you meet a friend and you think how come he or she gets to be so beautiful and happy and rich and intelligent and i don't or you see someone's holiday pictures come up on instagram and then you think well there they go again yet another exotic holiday it's not fair i want to be able to go on holidays like that why is her husband so kind and patient and considerate and why isn't mine why aren't my children as well behaved and committed as theirs we come to the last of these 10 commandments i wonder if as we read it you thought it had a sense of anti-climax some of us might think well we get why idolatry and murder and adultery and lies are a big deal but surely coveting can't be all that wrong uh, one book i was reading in my preparation devotes an average of 50 pages to each of the first of the nine commandments that we looked at this one the tenth four pages that would suggest uh, the writer at least thought it's not all that important I want to suggest it's not only important in its own right, but actually it wraps up and summarizes the other nine. These Ten Commandments, in a way, are an exposition of or an expansion of the greatest commandments. Do you remember when Jesus was asked what's the greatest commandment? He said, well, the first is this, you shall love the Lord your God 
with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The two great commandments. And in lots of ways, these Ten Commandments are an, a deeper explanation of what that will look like in practice. And now this Tenth Commandment, I'm going to say, shines a light right into the heart of each of those relationships. My relationships with my neighbor and my relationship with God. And you'll see on the sheet, if uh, it's there just in the Bible you were given as you came in, those are our two points tonight. We'll start with me and my neighbor, love or envy. Uh, here's verse 17 again. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. It's probably worth saying that the, the Bible never condemns desire itself. Uh, you may know that Buddhism teaches that our cravings are a problem and that we'll only find contentment in life if we have a, a complete fading away, a cessation of any form of desire. There can be a misconception sometimes, I think, that Christianity encourages a sort of wet and insipid and very passive uh, approach to life. But actually, well-directed desire is a really good thing. Uh, for a start in the Bible, we're commanded to desire God himself. The psalmist sings, as the, the deer pants for water, so my soul yearns after you, my God. My soul thirsts for the living God. You can see a sense of craving for God. Again, whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing that I desire besides you. In the New Testament, Jesus tells us to seek first his kingdom, to desire it, to want to know God. And it's not just spiritual desire that's okay, it's physical too. Jesus himself desired food when he was hungry and drink when he was thirsty and rest when he was tired. It's not desire itself that is wrong and condemned in this 10th commandment, but misplaced desire. Again, there's nothing wrong with simply noticing when you walk past a nice car or a pretty house or a beautiful person. That's not coveting, that's just good eyesight. The issue isn't the, the first look, it's the second and the third, and the fourth. To help us um, work it through in a bit more detail, theologians have tended to identify four stages of desire. Uh, the first is that moment of spontaneous desire, sometimes to, to turn away from God's will. It comes out of nowhere. It catches you off guard. You'll all have uh, known and experienced that. The second, though, is when we start to, to nurse that desire to romanticize and to, to linger upon it, to turn it over in our imagination. And when we do that, the desire grows and grows and grows and captures more and more of our heart. Stage three is when you make a plan to fulfill that craving. And fourth, when you carry out the deed. But coveting would be that second stage. When I set my desire on something that is not rightfully mine in such a way that I'm, I'm out to get it. And I start daydreaming about it. I, I set my heart on it. I start fantasizing about having it and how much better my life would be if I had it. 
And so coveting is a matter of the heart. And the way the commandment's worded, did you see that? It suggests it's got a strong relational element to it as well. It's not just setting my heart on having a house or wife or servant or donkey, but, but the one that belongs already to my neighbor. That's why coveting sometimes leads to theft. It's been said that, that coveting is to theft what lust is to adultery, because coveting and lust are internal sinful desires that are the seedbed in which those acts of adultery and theft might grow. And there's a close link, too, between coveting and envy. Uh, envy is when I become sad or angry that someone else is blessed. Um, God tells us doesn't need to rejoice with those who rejoice. But the, the envious or, or covetous heart will resent the success and blessing that God is giving to someone else. And rather than rejoicing when they rejoice, I end up weeping a little bit. And then if disappointment comes their way, I'm not always as sad as I should be. Uh, Gore Vidal had that line attributed to him. No idea if he said it. Whenever a, a friend succeeds, a little something inside me dies. I wonder if you've ever felt that sort of pang. A, a friend gets a great job, they get engaged, they get invited on a lovely holiday, and you know you're meant to be happy for them, and you are happy for them. But you don't like being single, and you'd love that holiday, and your own job applications aren't working out. So there's a little bit that resents their happiness. In that way, I'm not wishing for them what I would wish for myself. It's a, it's a failure to love my neighbor as myself. I've talked about it on a very individual level so far, but we could apply it much more broadly. When you think about the, the, the wars that have gone on between companies, long-running feuds between families and political parties and nations, even quite a lot of our foreign policy decisions over the last few hundred years. You can see why one writer said you could describe the history of the human race of entire nations and families under the theme, you have coveted what belonged to another. Why should that nation have all of those natural, natural reserves and fertile land when we don't? Maybe we should just invade and take it for ourselves. But Jesus said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of covetous desire, for life does not exist in the abundance of possessions. And then he told this parable, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I've got nowhere to store my crops. He said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there... I will store all of my grain and my goods, and I'll say to my soul, so you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. There's nothing to suggest he was a particularly immoral man, not that he'd made his fortune by exploiting people. He just seems to have worked hard and done well. His mistake wasn't that he was rich. It was that he was nothing but rich. He was so consumed by covetous desire to accumulate and enjoy that he'd forgotten about God completely. And so in the parable, God said to him, 
you fool. This very night, your soul is demanded of you. And the things you prepared, whose will they be? Sad, isn't it? All of that success, God's verdict on his life comes in one word, fool. Jesus' conclusion, so is the one who lays up treasure for themselves and is not rich towards God. Uh, I've quoted J.D. Rockefeller before. He's founded Standard Oil, as it now is, I think. Apparently, he was the world's first billionaire and measured in today's money, like for like, the richest person in history. He was asked, J.D., how much money do you need to be happy? And he thought and replied, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes, some of us studied, that says the same thing. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. And you think, well, what harm we've caused as a human race? What injury we've inflicted on others just because we've refused to heed Jesus's warning. Take care, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness. We've been saying through this series that one of the the key functions of God's law is to reveal the state of our own heart to us, to show us the ways in which we fall short of God's standards and the reason that we need a saviour. And I wonder if you can feel it happening even again tonight. We don't love our neighbour as ourselves. We need to repent and to give thanks again that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. There's another aspect to coveting, though. I've talked about me and my neighbor, love or envy. It's not just a function of, my relation, of our relationships with each other, though, but our relationship with God. I realize these are impossible to completely disentangle, but we'll think about that primarily now. Me and my God, contentment or dissatisfaction. Uh, it helps, I think, to try and get, get behind the commandment a bit to ask the question, why is it that we covet? What is the, the root of the issue? Or maybe to come at it the other way around, what would be the opposite of coveting? And as I've reflected on it, I'm persuaded that the opposite of coveting is contentment. Uh, we covet ultimately because we think we need something more than that which God has already given us. Uh, The root of that is a lack of trust in God. Theologian John Frame put it like this. We need to recognize that what God has provided is enough and to be thankful for it. If we're truly satisfied by God's provision, we will not covet. Uh, I put a few verses on the sheet. Let me just run through them quickly. This is You don't have to turn there, but this is Hebrews 13. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Seems in the logic of the verse that the antidote to coveting, that the, the fuel for contentment is the confidence that God is with us and that God is for us. Well, to put it a bit differently, if I wanted 
drag myself out of grumpy dissatisfaction with my lot in life, if I want to train my heart to stop fixing my desires on something sinful or something that God hasn't given me, well, the way to do it is to remind myself that God is with me and that God is enough. Oh, Philippians 4, Paul, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So the covetous heart says, I need more. The content heart says, Christ is enough. He's my life in the present. He's my guaranteed eternal future. And therefore, it doesn't matter whether I have much or little, because to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's that combination of deep delight in Christ and an inner detachment from my circumstances that breeds contentment. And it's the lack of those things that allows covetousness to grow inside. Or one more from 1 Timothy. This, there is great gain, Paul writes, in godliness with contentment. Godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of it. So if we've got food and clothing, with these we will be content. So great gain in godliness with contentment. He's talking about something far more important than material gain and the uncertainty of riches. This is the spiritual gain of an earthly life that is lived in close fellowship with our Father. And then in the age to come, eternal treasure, life with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that's the gain that mattered to Paul. And so he could say, as long as I've got food and clothes, I won't covet. I'll just be content with what my father's given me. Again, I was thinking we'd all be so much more at peace with ourselves and our lot in life if we could share that perspective. So here's the question. How do I learn to be content? It could be that God's given you a lot of money or maybe a little. Maybe he's given you a car you love or a car you hate or no car at all. Or maybe he's given you a fabulous spouse or no spouse at all or a marriage that can be a real struggle but how can we grow in contentment and it is all to do with the character of God I think putting those verses together one or two others that are like it in the New Testament if I'm to trust that the sovereign God has given me all that I need to love and serve him today I need to believe two things I need first to believe that God has sufficient wisdom to decide what and how much is good for me. And second, I need to believe that he loves me. I think both are important because if he loves me but lacks wisdom, he might withhold from me something I really need or alternatively overindulge and spoil me. If, on the other hand, God were wise but unloving, I'd, I'll never trust that his purposes for me are good. He might just be out to ruin my life. So I need the confidence that he is wise and loving. And I imagine that most of us do know that. 
in our heads at least. But if we need any reassurance of that, or if we find that covetous desire growing within us in such a way that we need to train our hearts again, I want to suggest the place we come back to is Calvary, where Jesus died on the cross. In the world's eyes, it was weak and foolish, wasn't it? That the Son of God should offer himself up to be killed. But the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, to those of us who are being saved, the message of the cross is the power and the wisdom of God. It's also a great demonstration of God's love. I was thinking through some of the, my favorite things that we sing about God's love. I don't know if you've got a favorite. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me. A sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous. How wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Here is love vast as the ocean. Loving kindness as the flood. When the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Perhaps the most incredible thing of all about it is that, that as Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't sacrificing himself for people who had loved him, but for people who had turned away from him again and again. For people like me, who've been taught lots about Jesus and still find ourselves in our heart thinking, Jesus isn't enough. I need more. It's wonderful that God demonstrates his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to overcome our coveting and to be perfect before he died for us. He died knowing that we weren't. And so the cross should be the thing that we come back to every day to remind ourselves of the infinite wisdom, the love, the power of God. And here's how that would apply to contentment. Because it is because God has proven undeniably in history on the cross that he is wise and loving, that I can trust absolutely that he knows what is best for me. And therefore, I don't need to covet anything else that he hasn't chosen to give me. Do you ever find yourself praying for something you really want? I've done this. I feel sure that it will be really, really good for me, for the work of God's kingdom, even for our family, whatever it is. You pray hard for it. But God doesn't give it to you straight away, at least. But like when Paul prayed three times for the thorn to be removed from his flesh but it seems never to have been taken away what do you do with that well isn't it good to come back to god's wisdom and love to remind ourselves that god is infinitely better qualified than we are to decide what is best to pray with jesus in the garden of gethsemane not my will but yours be done and that moment of surrender yields great contentment when you think about it in those moments in life when i'm content 
I'm basically saying to God, I know you to be wise and good. And I'm trusting you that you know best how to fulfill your own good purposes for my life and for the world. But if I'm dissatisfied, if I'm coveting stuff that God hasn't given to me, what I'm really saying is I think I know better than you what I need. I have a plan for my life that is wiser than your plan. It's humbling to think that that's what's going on when I grumble, when I covet. It's as arrogant as thinking that I know better than God. But that's what I'm doing. There's a great prayer in Proverbs that relates to this. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Don't refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. And then give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. There is real wisdom in that. Lord, just give me what I need one day at a time and help me to be content. My confession then is that the question that I started with isn't all that helpful. What do you need more of in your life if you want to be truly happy? It's not actually great to spend time dwelling on the things that we don't have, because that can just breed bitterness and sinful grumbling and discontent. It can fan the flames of covetousness in our hearts. And what we really need is not more stuff or a different life, but more of Christ himself. Because in him are all of the riches of wisdom and knowledge. In him, we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms if we've trusted in him. In him is perfect love and the light of life. As we've been thinking all evening, is the pearl of the greatest price. And he's stored up for us in his new creation an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And so by God's grace, by the power of the Spirit, we need to pray and to try and help one another to dwell on what we already have on Christ, in Christ. To remember that it, we could gain the whole world, but if we don't have him, we are bankrupt. But if all that we have is him, we have eternal riches. So how's this for a mantra for a, a, a heart to repeat that is prone to coveting. Christ will give me all that I need. I'm happy in him. He is my portion and my heart's desire. And his grace is sufficient. So I will trust in him. It's not very catchy, is it? Mantras are probably meant to be a bit shorter than that. But those are the, the basic elements, I think, of what we're learning. Christ will give me everything that I need. He is my portion and my heart's desire. His grace is sufficient. So I will trust in him. Why don't we pray together? Oh, Father, we are sorry for times and ways in which we don't love our neighbors as ourselves in this whole area of coveting when we are envious. If ever we've been tempted even to steal from our neighbors, if ever we've 
used other people for the things that we can gain from them rather than loving them sacrificially. We're sorry too for ways in which we haven't trusted that you are a good God who gives us everything that we need. We're sorry for times when we've thought that our plan for our life is better than yours. And so rather than being content, we've grumbled or been dissatisfied. We know that it's right that we should grieve at the wrong things that there are in the world. And we know that it's natural to be concerned for the future, especially if we don't have much. But we pray that you would help us to trust in you, to remember that you are mighty and that you are wise and that you are good. We pray that the cross would feed contentment into our hearts day by day and that you would help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Thank you that in the Lord Jesus are all of the riches of wisdom and knowledge. We pray, therefore, that for each one of us to live this week, these next few months and all of our days, to live might be Christ and that we might remember that to die is gain. And we pray it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.